Welcome back to another episode of Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, with me today is someone that our listeners are already familiar with, uh, Michael Eisenberg. Michael is uh, the principal at a VC fund in Tel Aviv called Aleph, but I think more familiar to our listeners. He and I hosted a series together a year or two, I guess two years pre-COVID, um, in Tel Aviv with, I think, eight different Israeli uh, startup founders. And then Michael, I think separately has also been a, a guest of the podcast before. Um, but we're recording this today, August 24th, because it is the publication date in the United States uh, of his new book. So just wanted to have Michael on to talk about that and tell us what he wrote. So Michael, thanks for joining us. Bradley, thanks for having me again. I really appreciate it and uh, enjoy our relationship both on the business side and the media side. And Keep up doing the good work you're doing. Appreciate it. So I, um, I'm going to read the, the, I was lucky enough to be asked to write a blurb for your new book. And I'm going to read it because I, I feel like it really does, at least from my perspective, and I think that of our listeners, kind of explain why a, a book that seems to be about the Bible um, is so helpful in thinking about venture capital and business broadly. So uh, what I wrote is, Venture capital typically exists in a secular vacuum, but as Eisenberg demonstrates, it only really works when it's undergirded by a moral framework of trust, mutual benefit, and societal advancement. The two come together in the tree of life and prosperity by showing how the teachings of the Torah create a roadmap for dealing with other people, negotiating conflict, and achieving outcomes that can work for everyone. That can work for everyone. This is a must-read for anyone who wants investing to be more than a zero-sum game. So let's let's take a step back introduce, reintroduce you to the listeners and then kind of delve into the book itself. Um, you're probably the most productive person I know, right? You run an incredibly successful venture capital fund. This is your sixth book. Is that right? Seventh. Seventh book. Yeah. And, and you have how many kids? Eight children. Eight children. Right. So, so seven books, eight kids and one extremely successful venture capital fund. Um, so I'm sure you could ask this all the time, but what's, how do you do it? What's the secret? Uh, married well, married young. Um, my wife is amazing and, uh, you know, has been my partner in all these things. Um, and I guess I don't have too many hobbies and I'm not good at many things. My, my children laugh that, I, that I'm tone deaf and I'm somewhat uncoordinated in dancing. So I have a limited number of hobbies. And one of the things I've been saying you know, recently is the truth is, I guess I only know how to do one thing, which is write. Uh, I write books and I write checks uh, from the fund. And uh, you know, it keeps me focused on what I can do. Oh, and you're also very involved in, in different philanthropic causes in, in Israel as well. So yeah. I'm not, not totally sure that that's all that. So, okay, but let's, let's put the modesty aside for a second and, and just stipulate that you get more done than the average person. And I'll, I'll say it's that you don't have to. What are the kinds of things that you think you do that allow you to be productive that other people could learn from? Um, I'm a little bit of an insomniac as part of it. Although I'm trying to get more sleep. Uh, Keith Raboy has persuaded me that, that I need more sleep. Um, and I, I just, I have a kind of a schedule almost to my day, but a little, um, uh, so I, I, every morning I get up and I write. And so. What time do you get up? Somewhere between five and six. First thing you do is start right. Have some coffee, or you just start writing. No, I don't have coffee because I don't eat or drink before I go pray, and so my day is regimented about around going to synagogue and praying on some level. So that only is at six. Um, so if I'm up before that, I start writing then, and if I'm not, I'll start writing right after uh, synagogue. And uh, I think that regimenting of the day uh, around the, the three prayers of the day is helpful, and kind of you know 
putting demarcations in the day. Uh, and so I, I try to write early in the morning to make sure I do that. And before I started writing, I, w- I would study uh, the Torah or Bible uh, in the morning. And um, I, I try very hard to not waste extra time. So you'll notice my, my emails are short. Um, and uh, I try to keep meetings you know, to the time they need rather than letting them run over. Um, and just try to be as efficient as possible. I think the only thing we have in this world is time. And it's uh, more valuable than, than anything. And so I, I, I treasure it. I, I had a rabbi in the ninth grade, and he and I didn't get along very well for what it's worth. Um, he once told my dad that I was the biggest waste of potential he'd ever seen. And um, but, but <laughs> he, he taught me a critical lesson, actually. He, it's literally the one thing I took out of an entire year of study in his class in the ninth grade. He said there was never more accurate an English expression than killing time. Because once it's passed, it's dead, it's gone forever. And I think that's really true. And some people talk about putting a, a price tag on time, but I just think that that state of mind that, that you know, time wasted is time gone is, is important. What's the th- way that your time gets wasted the most by other people that, that really frustrates you? That's a really great, hard question. Things that people can do on their own, but they ask you to do them. Um, I'm always happy to do things for other people, but if you can do it yourself, go do it. And I think that that creates self-efficacy also. So there's, there's value in that. Um, that's probably more than anything. All right. That makes sense. So let's, let's pivot to the book. So tree of life and prosperity comes out today in the U S um, what made you decide to write it? It almost feels like it's the kind of thing that was maybe in your head for a long time and kind of develop as the, as a reader, I kind of imagined it being the thing that like over the course of a career, these things kept occurring to you. And then finally you decided, hey, let me put it all together into kind of a cohesive narrative. Is that, is that right? Or did you just pop it right out? No, that, that's 100% right. It's actually the convergence of two things over the course of a career in venture capital and over the course of discussions about the weekly Torah portion at our Sabbath table uh, with our kids. And, you know, inevitably, anybody bring, everybody brings their own glasses when you look at any text. And so, you know, my... My portal onto texts is, is my own baggage, which is technology, innovation, economics, investments, um, much like other commentaries had whatever baggage they had over time, whether it was Isaac Donna Barbanel, who was you know, the finance minister of, of Spain and Portugal, but was uh, thrown out of Spain in 1492 in the Inquisition, and, uh, and he hated the monarchy for it, or Rabbi Abraham Ibn Ezra, who was poor and you know, viewed the Bible through that lens as well. And so, you know, that was my lens and it started as Sabbath table conversation. And I wrote notes uh, after the Sabbath because I don't write on the Sabbath. And uh, then the notes like accumulated and I found I had this enormous Google document of hundreds of pages of notes just from discussing things at the table. So I decided one year, probably I think six or seven years ago to send them out as weekly missives on WhatsApps. And they were like six to eight pages a week to a group of about 140 people. And one of the people said to me, you ought to turn this into a book. And so I did first in Hebrew. And then the book in Hebrew was fascinating. It, it, it taught me a lesson. It was picked up by people of all stripes, you know, tech CEOs and investors and religious people and not and secular people and ultra Orthodox. And it, it touched people in different ways. And then, uh, and then I got called by, by Adam Bellow, who was my editor of the English book, and said, hey, I'd like to do this in English. 
And so we translated it into English and then adapted it. It required significant adaptation to English to make it more accessible. And that, you know, both my editors, uh, Rabbi Amit Miskav, who's also an economist who, who did the Hebrew editing work, and Adam Bell, who did the English editing work, made this book readable. Um, you know, and, and it definitely is. I read it. It's funny. You, you sent it me a PDF. And, like I, you know, I get up like you really early. Um, and I just started kind of glancing at it one morning. I don't know, maybe 5, 5.30. And I literally didn't really look up. I think other than once to email in the middle to tell you how much I was enjoying it to like three hours, four hours later when I was done with it. Um, so, yeah, I think that works. The, the thing that really captured me in the book is the underlying argument you make that, that not only do you need a moral framework um, to be successful uh, at business, but but that a lot of those lessons can be found in the Bible and there are, the Bible teaches you uh, how to have outcomes that potentially work for everyone rather than this very kind of Trumpian zero-sum game you know, approach to life. Yeah, so when, when I released the Hebrew book, uh, a, a rabbi in Jerusalem named Rabbi Benny Lau um, and I were discussing the book uh, on a panel and he said, someone asked him, what'd you learn from the book? And he said, I learned that people haven't changed in 4,000 years. And uh, we spend most of our day working. Uh, economics and business is at, is at the center of our lives, just as it was 4,000 years ago. And uh, so if the Bible is talking about real people or real problems, uh, whether people are allegories or historical, it doesn't matter. It's, uh, it's relevant to today. And, and, you know, the Bible's had more unique users than Google and Facebook combined over history. And you see today, and this has been really interesting to me, um, timeless wisdom matters in chaotic times, and we're living in chaotic times. And so uh, let's, let's talk about two points of that. And you mentioned one of them. Let's talk about, you know, the wealth gap on some level, but it's not just the wealth gap. It's how we think about this. And so Abraham, who was a well-to-do guy, uh, the, the, the Torah of the Bible says about him that he comes with a lot of uh, property, goods, gold, silver, when he travels to the land of Canaan, the land of Israel. And But he, it also tells us something else. He brings with him his wife and 70 people, plus one other person who's his nephew, a lot. And we know one thing about his nephew and that he's an orphan. And uh, the Bible's trying to tell us that Abraham, part of his mission in this wealth is to take care of the orphan, but it's not charity, and that's key. And then there's a famine. They go down to Egypt together, and Abraham becomes more successful, but the Bible tells us something else. Lot becomes independently successful and wealthy. And we understand from this that Abraham, in partnership uh, with his orphan nephew, has enabled him, has empowered him has given him the tools to be successful on his own. Unfortunately, that goes to Lot's head, and he thinks he should be wealthy for wealth's sake and goes to Sodom and Gomorrah. But the point is, is we can expand wealth by investing in partnership with other people and making them independently successful. And this is not redistribution or this is not uh, charity, all of which are important, meaning specifically charity. It's we can empower lots of people. And then we think about our life, you know, innovation and technology. I like to think about Noah in this context. So we all know of Noah. He built the ark. He saved the world from the flood, etc. Okay, that's part of the story about Noah. But actually, Noah, the bookends of Noah's life is he was an innovator. First, he invented the plow, and then he invented fermentation, creating wine. 
And wine was actually the water of the ancients because it was clean due to the alcohol and water was brackish. And so uh, Noah invents the plow and there's the first era of abundance in the world during the time of Noah. And uh, we live today in an era of abundance, but the era of abundance then led to moral turpitude and licentious behavior and people taking advantage of others and an erosion of trust in society. The, the Torah uses the term Hamas, which doesn't mean the terrorist organization in Gaza there. It means stealing a little bit here and a little bit there until trust gets eroded. And so that era of abundance, which came from Noah's invention of the plow, because it was not undergirded or supported by timeless values, went corrupt. And the same thing happened when he invented fermentation in wine. Wine gladdens the heart. It can be used for water. But instead, Noah drank himself to a drunken stupor and was abused uh, by his son, Ham, sexually abused. And so what the Bible is telling us is innovation can be used to create abundance, can impel the world forward. It should and needs to propel the world forward, and we need it. But at the same time, if it doesn't have timeless value associated with it, it will corrupt the world. And so I think these timeless principles in the current time now of AI, synthetic biology, uh, autonomous vehicles, all these new amazing innovations that we need and must have need to be undergirded by, by timeless principles. And someone I think we both know, Balaji Srinivasan, said about the book, uh, it's kind of wisdom of ancients for moderns, and, and we need that wisdom. So uh, tell me, you're, you're sitting in, you're at the, your office in Tel Aviv, you know, an entrepreneur is pitching you on a new startup, and you're, you're paying attention, asking questions, and doing all the normal pattern recognition stuff that we VCs tend to do. Um, how and when do these lessons kind of seep back into the questions you're asking, the decisions you're making, you know, the investments you're prioritizing, everything else? So a few things here. Um, number one, I believe, and I say this in the book, that in the 21st century, due to a lot of factors, including transparency, a consumer preference, and, and other things, the there is businesses that are built and their business model is aligned with values um, and principles will be more successful in the 21st century. We were both investors and I'm still a large shareholder in Lemonade. Lemonade fundamentally transformed insurance from a business model that was antagonistic. The insurance companies made money when you in your greatest time of need had your claim rejected um, to an aligned business where Lemonade just takes money for running the, pre running the premium pool. Those businesses grow faster and are more successful in the 21st century because they're, they're supported and undergirded by principles and fundamentally aligned. And so I believe when these entrepreneurs walk in, if they don't have a, a business that is aligned with fundamental timeless principles, they'll actually be undermined over time in the, in the 21st century. I'll give you two examples of this. Um, I got, uh, I got asked last night on a panel for, for the book launch, uh, where was a case, um, where these principles leaded me to make a, a really difficult choice. So I saw a really amazing business from a profit perspective, um, and the business has done well. It's worth many, many billions of dollars today. But when I did due diligence on it, I found out that most of their customers lost money. And that just kind of felt to me, well, kind of not right, given what I said about Abraham a lot before. We should empower people to make more money, not have a business where most of our customers lose money. And so um, I passed and probably gave up, not probably, definitely gave up on, on, a, on a lot of riches there. And I actually haven't invested in China. Um, and I don't invest in funds whose primary business is investing in China. 
um, and I've invested in a fair number of funds. And that's been uh, a choice I made because of something really important, and that is freedom is fundamental for capitalism. When I say capitalism, I don't mean just the system of the economy. I mean the right to own private property. And so the Exodus teaches us that so long as the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt, they own nothing. And things like private property and even the uh, commandment, thou shalt not covet, don't come into existence until after the Exodus. You can't covet anything if it doesn't belong to the other person. And if you have no freedom, they have no ownership. So there's no point of thou shalt not covet in Egypt. And I, I kind of view China as you may think you own that share of stock. You don't really. And so when when Ant.com's uh, IPO was, was, was canceled, um, it didn't shock me, actually. And by the way, on the balance sheet, I probably lost money over time. Way smarter people than me probably made a lot of money in China. But it's not something I want to do from a values perspective. And I think over the long term, that will show up as a good decision. So do, do your LPs kind of know that you take this approach? Did, did they read the book? And if so, th- does anyone ever object to it and just say, hey, Michael, I'm investing in you to get the highest returns I possibly can. That's your job. Hey, I'm investing in me to get the highest returns I can, too, by the way. And I'm a large LP in my own fund. But still, does anyone complain? And, and you no, know, even my LPs have tweeted out the book. And I think fundamentally, this is the best way to make money in the 21st century. The best way as a venture capitalist to make money is to have these build businesses, you know, undergirded by values. By the way, I think if you look like businesses like Airbnb, you know, in the sense of belonging engendered there by, by Chesky and, and, uh, and Douglas Atkins, who I have a tremendous amount of respect for, Douglas Atkins, sorry, tremendous amount of respect for you know, these people have created belonging as a principal value. And I, and I think that matters. And I think it creates great, great businesses. What do you think about ESG funds? Because you could argue that if you take the lessons of your book and apply them rigorously, there's almost no need for an ESG fund. And, and arguably, it actually divides what, what you're saying is the best approach, which is to have a moral framework to your investing and try to make as much money as possible doing. Yeah. So I, this is not impact investing, which is they call double bottom line where I'm sacrificing profits. I'm not sacrificing profits. I want to make the most money possible for my LPs. They deserve that. Um, and this is not corporate social responsibility, corporate social responsibility, which is important as charity um, is, you know, I give money over here, but I make money over there. And what I'm talking about are fundamentally aligned businesses. And uh, ESG, which is, I think, closer to what I'm talking about than CSR, or corporate social responsibility, um, is, is a good set of goals. It's really important, but I don't know if it's fundamental to the business. And I think consumers over time and businesses over time want to do business, business with businesses that are fundamentally aligned. Um, and I think that's why it's a good investment strategy. And I want, I want to say again, this is not charity or corporate or social responsibility or impact investing. It's the contrary. It's We can build large businesses like this, people identify. You know, I, I actually saw a company today in the coffee business. Um, and yeah, I, I'm not sure it's investment for our fund, but fundamental to the business is not ESG, but they've managed to get rid of uh, all of the capsules that you find in all these uh, coffee machines that are really environmentally polluting uh, pretty significantly. Um, and a lot of the coffee supply chain 
which is also polluting because of the packaging. And I think people are going to want to buy this product. And by the way, it's a B2B product because it, it provides transparency in the supply chain and it gets rid of the need for these capsules. And I think these guys are really on to something um, and it's kind of fundamentally aligned. So do you feel, you know, the venture world tends to be very secular, right? And almost, it's almost not cool in tech to say that you're, you're religious. Um, but are there investors like you that you can think of who you know really are guided by their faith um, and that shapes their investment decisions? And if so, you know, what are their returns like? I have no idea what anybody's returns are like, but you know, I, I, would, say, right. I would say the following. Um, one is a, I've been surprised by how many people of faith have reached out and said, um, Hey, the book really resonated. Somebody reached out yesterday, someone pretty well known and said, Hey, I saw your, your article on why you need to have kids. Cause that's really the answer uh, to all innovation problems and people's pessimism today about the state of the world and the environment and all sorts of Maureen Dowd commentators who think we should not have kids today because it's destroy the environment. Um, he, 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 I believe, is Catholic. I didn't ask. I'm still kind of old-fashioned like that. I don't, I don't ask people what their beliefs are. But um, the book has resonated, and this has been, and this is super important. The book has resonated with people regardless of where they stand religiously. Uh, Keith Roboy just t- tweeted out today, every founder ought to read the book. I, I, I guarantee you that uh, not all founders are, are religious people in any way. And, and I think it's true because I think the Bible as a timeless text has a lot to say to us. And if you read the blurbs of which yours is one, they don't come all from Jewish people or religious people or, uh, you know, people of any one faith. I I, I think it, it matters. I, I got an email yesterday from somebody sent a pre-release of the book to in India who sent me back saying, Hey, this resonated with my, with my fiance. Uh, she's been thinking about similar topics from the, from Buddhism. Um, and so and I know nothing about Buddhism, and he sent me a bunch of stuff to read, which I haven't gotten to yet. But, uh, you know, I think, you know, this is this is about timeless principles. And yes, they come, in my view, from the Torah. Uh, and I, I think the Torah can speak to anybody, irrespective of faith. Um, so, Michael, what happens when you make investments with this kind of moral framework in mind, but then things change at a company um, that you didn't anticipate. And, and to use a real life example, in, in your portfolio, you were one of the earliest investors in WeWork. Uh, obviously, you saw a lot there that you were excited about. Um, and while some of the stories about the company may not be true, if you look at what's in popular media today, it makes it sound like uh, you know they were running a den of inequity there. Um, what what happens if things do change on the ground after you made an investment? What do you do? So. Um... You know, when I first invested in WeWork, I think there was a uh, a mission that I think is still pertinent today, and I think is part of the reason why WeWork is successful today, is there was a community of people who worked together and actually did business with each other, uh, supported each other in, in tough times and good times. And when I did diligence on WeWork, I, I went around and interviewed all the members at the time, and they kind of said, hey, this is like my family. Hey, you know, this is my social network. And uh, if I need a freelancer, I'll go down the hall and I know them and I trust them. And they created a real community of, of trust there. And I think that was and still is uh, attractive. Um, I haven't read the books. Uh, the first book I didn't read. The second book, I'm actually probably a quarter or a third of the way through uh, at this point. And, you know, unquestionably, if you're around a table 
Um, things go wrong. You know, one of the things about venture capital investing is you get a lot wrong. We're wrong 50% of the time. And, and, and things do go wrong. And sometimes they go wrong with personalities and sometimes they go wrong uh, with, with bad decision making and uh, of all kinds. And I think it's the job of the investor uh, and the board member. And I, I was not a board member there, but I was an observer um, to stand up and, and try to, you know, and try to put it right. Um, and sometimes you're successful at it and sometimes you're not. And sometimes, by the way, you yourself make bad judgments along the way. Uh, we're all human and humans make mistakes. I think one of the lessons of the Bible is that human beings are imperfect um, and they got to keep trying to get better and we keep trying to get better at it. And I'm pretty certain uh, that I made mistakes there. Uh, I did my best uh, to stand up for what I thought was right and keep the company on its mission. Um, I, I'd like to believe that, that, you know, the management and the founders tried their best as well and certainly had some uh, moments of significant indiscretion. Uh, I'm not aware of everything that was written in the book um, or wasn't aware in real time. Uh, some come out and I don't know if it's all true either. Um, and then, you know, like the last thing is I think there are always moments of truths at these companies. And as I, as I'm certain the book probably details, uh, cause it's been out elsewhere. Uh, you know, I was at that, that last dinner, uh, with Adam, uh, together with, uh, Bruce Dunleavy, et cetera, you know, when there was a hard decision to part ways and, you know, it wasn't easy. And, uh, I think we've all learned a lot of lessons, uh, from this, uh, episode. Um, and you really got to stay on it. And I think it's the job of the investors. We can, you know, we can get caught up in a lot of things sometime and it's, it's important to have perspective to do this. And, and if, and if I lapsed on that at any point, uh, I need to do better next time. Um, want to pivot, uh, to, to COVID. I know the Delta variant is obviously raging in Israel, just like it is, uh, everywhere else. And, and you had mentioned that, you know, because of the different, uh, quarantine restrictions, your, your travel is pretty limited right now. It felt like Israel was the shining light, kind of getting everything right, getting everyone vaccinated, everyone kind of handling this responsibly. And yet the problem is still pretty severe there. What, what does that mean? Does it mean it's just the problem was bigger than any of us anticipated? Does it mean that um, Israel hasn't quite advanced as far as we thought on fighting the virus? What, what do you think? Well, I think there's a few things here. One is um, I think this virus ought to teach us all a lesson in humility. Um, you know, this is kind of my view on, you know, innovation is is amazing. And the vaccine, by the way, is saving lives and everyone should go get vaccinated. It's really, really, really saving lives. And I myself have gotten the third booster shot. And, you know, the data is irrefutable that it, that it helps, at least against the current variants that are out there. And there doesn't seem to be much difference between the Delta or the other variants um, in that regard. Um, and at the same time, even though we have vaccines, you know, science, which became a religion in the course of this uh, pandemic, uh, also doesn't have all the answers. Uh, we should be humbled by this unbelievably resilient and innovative virus um, that nobody predicted uh, would come now. There were people who predicted one would happen um, and nobody understood just how long it would take. Um, and so it, it it should humble us. That's kind of the first thing. I think the second thing is Israel has always been ahead in this whole virus, by the way, both the early infections, then the vaccine, and now Delta, I'm really worried about, you know, the Delta ripping through the U.S. right now and, and other Western countries. Um, and it's, uh, we'd like to believe it's not changing people, but, but I think it is. People feel, people are scared. People are lonely. Um, people are fearful. And there is, a lot of people have lost their jobs. And I, and I think, uh, you know, we're, we're learning that and we're not done yet. 
uh, with this. Uh, I unfortunately won a, won a friendly wager with one of my best friends. I, I told him that by this high holiday season, we would not be back normally in synagogues. And unfortunately, I'm going to win that bet. I made that bet 15 months ago. Um, and, and, and I think we still got a while to go. And so we need to be careful. And I think this is not going to sound PC, but, and it isn't, I guess, but different societies put a different value on a human life. And for better or for worse, Israel puts a super high value on, on that. You see this, by the way, when we trade, you know, hundreds of terrorists for one captured soldier. You see this even with dead bodies when we'll trade hundreds of, of, of you know, incarcerated terrorists for dead bodies. And same in the pandemic. And so the response here is pretty is pretty rigid. But like other places, we also have a lot of unvaccinated people and people are tired of the pandemic and out out doing their thing, whether it's weddings or concerts or soccer games or, or uh, you know, large gatherings or synagogues or churches. You know, people are out and they're tired. And I get it. It's human nature. And we kind of as a society need to make a decision as to what sacrifice we're willing to make to live life right now. But nobody's been explicit about that. And I think we need to be. So what if, if they came to you and said, OK, Michael, based on uh, all of both the kind of your faith and, and wisdom you've learned through study um, and all of your kind of success and involvement in the real world, you know, what if we're willing to make a global sacrifice. What does it need to be to get this thing beat? What, what would you say? I don't think we can beat it. And I think we need to level with people and say, we're not going to beat it. Um, and it's going to, it's going to expand my own view. I won't speak for any other country on, on Israel is, um, the third vaccine has worked a lot. Um, number one, we should uh, open up the economy and open up the border, um, for vaccinated people. And we can decide if it's two vaccines or three vaccines, uh, you know, smarter people than me should decide on that. Um, so we can get tourism back and running and we can get business travel back and running. Uh, that's number one. We should ask people who are older above the age of 60 or 70. I don't have a view on that to be super careful and stay at home. The Bible has a very important uh, line, which says you stand up before your elders. Um, I think many societies think that uh, elderly people are closer to the monkey and they're closer to the truth. And I think there's ancient wisdom among our elderly and we should protect them. And that's a very big human value. And so we should protect them, but we need to let uh, kids and others probably go back around their lives. I think the one scary thing about that, by the way, is long COVID in kids. And we don't know enough about it, but I think we need to have humility to say we're actually not going to know enough about it. And, and 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 there's other costs to kids at this point. And by the way, I was super careful at the beginning of the pandemic. I think there was a lot more uncertainty then. I think there is still uncertainty, but some less. Yeah, that's right. Um, want, want to wrap up on on politics and Israeli politics, which is so obviously they a, a very unconventional deal was reached to finally bring an end to the impasse on uh, the elections there. Uh, there's now a, a new prime minister. Um, what's your thoughts on kind of how this all landed? And whether you're more optimistic for the country as a result of it, or you think it's a, a bad outcome, what, what do you, what's your take on it? Um, look, I'm in favor of this new government. Uh, I think we needed a change more than in, anything. Uh, three or four years ago, I gave an interview in one of the Israeli papers where I said, let's say that Netanyahu did a really, really good job, but, but he had an expiry date on him and it's long past overdue. Um, and we needed a new government and we needed a change of blood. Too many people sitting in office for too long is bad for democracy. It's bad for innovation. It's bad for freedom. Um, and it's bad for the economy and bad for society. 
And so we needed a change. And I, I think that change is, is important. I like the fact that we have a young prime minister uh, in there now. He'll shake a few things up. And I think a lot of the new ministers have come to work. That having been said, there's a lot to do right now in a very chaotic time uh, with Iran marching towards a bomb. Uh, I don't estimate underestimate what happened in Afghanistan and you know the Belt and Road Initiative between China, Afghanistan, which could reach Iran. Um, and I think you know Hamas and Hezbollah uh, and ISIS are emboldened by what happened in Afghanistan, and, that, and that's tricky. And then on the last thing is we we've got to you know it goes back to the first point I made about enabling wealth. We have to expand the blessing of high tech in Israel. So the last two three years has been a bonanza. Um, in Tel Aviv and in the high-tech industry in Israel, just a bonanza. Um, but we have a nine million or nine and a half million person population and only called 350,000 people work in tech and tech-related industries. And we must, it is a societal imperative in a society that has high solidarity like Israel does um, to get more people into this tech economy. And I think that is underappreciated as to how important that is by this new government. And, and we need to get focused on it. And by the way, I think it's underappreciated uh, in the U.S. government as well. Uh, we have to get more people in the tech economy. It's taking over every sector of the economy, and, and we need to really, really invest in that hard. Yeah, agree. I, I think I don't think it's even something the U.S. government think, thinks about, let alone has a, a plan on. So uh, uh, on that depressing note, I guess we'll end it. But I um, want to really recommend the, the book to everyone, The Tree of Life and Prosperity, um, I, I found it to be, you know, one of those rare combinations of a book that was really instructive. And I, I felt like I learned a lot from it, but I also just really enjoyed reading it. it it's actually kind of an easy read for a serious topic. So um, hi highly recommend it. And Michael, congratulations on on writing the book. And uh, hopefully it's a big hit here in the U.S. Bradley, I really appreciate it. I really appreciate you reading it, reviewing it, writing the blurb and then uh, having this conversation. You're always a good tough and insightful uh, interviewer. And uh, I do, I hope, you know, more than anything, I hope the book creates a conversation uh, around values, around principles, uh, and the importance of them in our, our modern economy. And, you know, for what it's worth, we talk a lot about government, but I think there's a civic responsibility that we can take out of this, of what we can do to make, to make things better right now. And I, I'm optimistic about that, actually. And I think, you know, one of the things that comes out of the Torah of the Bible is you've got a civic responsibility. It's not on the government. Yeah. And uh, the more people, I think, start to understand that, the, the better off we're going to be. So ho hopefully this is the beginning of, uh, of a trend on that. So, Michael, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Bradley.